From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Flint, Michigan and currently residing in Chicago, Illinois. She is the co-founder of Intermittent and the head of customer advocacy at ClearCover. Please welcome Heidi Kron. <laughs> welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you for such an exciting welcome, too. <laughs> I have to hype you up. It's my job. <laughs> she is Heidi Cron, head of customer advocacy at ClearCover and co-founder of Intermittent. Let's break down each of those real quick. Intermittent is a grassroots volunteer-operated organization with a mission to unite the Midwest tech community, thoughtfully nurture its development, and highlight the Midwest as a hub of and destination for entrepreneurial thought, leadership, and talent. They host the annual Intermittent Conference every summer. And then ClearCover, you may, you may not have heard about them, but ClearCover is the smarter car insurance choice, offering better coverage for less money. ClearCover's API-first approach lets customers have great insurance at affordable rates. And the company's powerful technology, coupled with its dedicated customer advocate team, which Heidi heads up, ensures a quality experience. ClearCover is built for modern drivers. ClearCover makes it easy to get reliable car insurance in minutes. Our topic today is generating feedback loops to improve the buyer experience. Heidi, why is this on your mind and why is it important to you? Well, this is something that I've been really passionate about for several years now. And that's because feedback loops are really critical, not only just for understanding customers and ensuring that a company is continuing to meet their needs, but they're the only real way to scale a company's customer experience team efficiently. We are going to dive all into that in just a moment. Before we do, let's learn a little bit more about Heidi and just share a little bit of backdrop as well about our relationship. So Heidi, we've known each other for a little over a year now. I think probably like last year, February or March is when we had that coffee meeting. Uh, to talk about intermittent. And then last June in Ann Arbor was the conference. Uh, you were gracious enough to allow me to be the opening keynote speaker for that, which to date of all the speaking things I've ever done, that one was hands down my favorite. <laughs> it's rare when, when, when you do the stuff that I do where you incorporate like music and stuff, it's rare that the setup is like perfect for it. And this being, you know, this conference being hosted at an actual small music venue just made it like it was 
everything I could have wanted out of a speaking experience. <laughs> well, you were everything we could have wanted for an opener. You really uh, got the crowd hyped, which is exactly what we <laughs> knew you would do. So thank Good. you for having us there. I appreciate that a lot. Um, let's talk about intermittent for a second. Um, you know, you've, you've had this organization running for several years now. Of course, now with the pandemic, doing an in-person event is in the air or, or what, what might a new event look like. But tell me, when you think about Intermittent as an organization and, and the events you've done over the past years, what do you think um, it has been able to bring to the people who have been involved with it and then also just the Midwest community at large? Oh, that's a really good question. I think the biggest thing that Intermittent has been able to do is unite a community of people who are really interested in entrepreneurship for good and for positive social change. I'm not just around building successful businesses. It's not just like going to um, an industry conference like um, like Dreamforce, like a big Salesforce event, but how do we work together when we have a passion for doing positive work within our communities and in our organizations, um, as well as building a successful company. So that's been really kind of part and parcel to who we are. And it's also been really amazing over the years as we've moved the conference around a little bit and expanded our involvement like with people, speakers in Chicago, speakers mm -hmm. in Detroit, seeing bridges being built between small ecosystems throughout our region. That's our, that's our goal. Yeah. And I can tell you having been there last year, um, honestly, a lot of times when I speak at an event or a conference, I do my thing and then I'll hang out somewhere in the back and like, just get my work, get work done. Uh, that 0% of that happened <laughs> at intermittent last year because every talk was so good that I couldn't possibly like I couldn't, I had zero pull to like start checking emails while someone was talking or, um, or just not pay attention. Cause I was just like, man, this is so engrossing. And then I think you also did a really good job of, of building in like the, the email breaks or the bathroom breaks too. But I just remember, uh, everything just throughout the day just kept getting better and better and better, which I have not really seen at a conference before. Wow. That's the highest compliment you could give me because we work really, really hard to make that happen. And, you know, there are always some misses. You, it's impossible to nail everything. There are going to be things that go wrong, like at a wedding or, or something like that. Um, but our biggest goal is to make sure that the content is really engaging and that People don't like drop in and out of the talks because they build on each other. They're curated and we have it as a one track, one day event for that reason. Um, we want to make sure that people walk away really inspired and having, you know, connected all these dots across all these different speakers and their areas of expertise. So that's just that you just made my heart sing. Thank you. <laughs> good, good. Um, let's rewind a little bit further back. I mentioned in your introduction, you grew up in Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, kind of seeing the changes in Flint over the last 30 years or so, uh, what do you feel growing up in that environment? Um, how did, how did it shape you? Mm, that's a really good question. So I think growing up in Michigan in particular and in, in Flint in particular, most of my family, um, 
worked for what we call the big three, the big three automakers. And there's something really special about that work ethic. And I know that there are different stories that are, are shared about that and like what it means to be a union worker or, you know, things like that. Um, but I grew up with family members who have a really, really strong work ethic and um, are very proud of, of where they work and, and the work that they do. Um, and so I think that really helped shape me because even though um, my papa, my, my dad who raised me, he works for GM still, even though he doesn't necessarily like have a passion for making dyes. He's a dye maker. Um, mm-hmm. He feels passionately about doing a good job. And that was really ingrained in me. And he works really, really hard. And he provided a very good life for us. Um, what I also took from that is that I want to be passionate about the work that I do. And I want to help create and inspire people to live bigger and better lives and to have a positive impact in the world while working really, really hard. So I think there, you know, there are things about how I grew up that I really wanted to emulate. And there are things about how I grew up that made me want different, Mm. different from, from what I saw in my own family. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, really great opportunities that were afforded to me through the experience uh, that my, my family had by raising me in mm-hmm. that environment. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I, I don't take for granted where I am today. Yeah. Continuing on the personal note, um, your other father last year tragically passed away only, I think maybe within a month or maybe two after the intermittent conference. Um, obviously a very tough thing to have to experience and I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, typically when something like that happens to people, uh, it kind of forces you to hit the reset button. So in what way do you feel like after that happened or when that happened, you hit a reset button for yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. And thank you for your kind words. Um, it was just a couple of weeks after intermittent that that happened. And um, I've, suffered loss in my life before, um, a tragic loss. My mom was killed in a car accident when I was young. So I think I, for, uh, how do I say this? So I've experienced loss as a young girl too. My mom was killed in a car accident. And so I've, I've been through tragedy before. Um, and I learned a lot in that, but I think that what was different about my dad's passing is it was a complicated relationship to begin with, my dad suffered um, with a lot of mental health issues, uh, including addiction, uh, alcoholism specifically. And he was homeless at the, the time that he passed away. And he was found unexpectedly having drowned in, the, in a river. And so that was very alarming and very public in a way that I hadn't experienced before, where by the time right, like it's I- reported in the paper, right? Exactly. By the time I found out about it, um, here in Chicago, it was days after he'd been found hmm. and it had already been pretty widely publicized um, in that part of Michigan that there was a body found <laughs> floating in a river. Like it's a horrible thing, right? And they didn't understand at the time how he died. So, you know, there are a lot of people alarmed with like, was there foul play? You know, do we need to be concerned about something? You know, 
So understandably so, but that was a very different thing from when my mom passed away, for example, even though that was also unexpected and tragic. Um, And I think that dealing with the public nature of, of my dad's death took a much bigger emotional toll on me and kind of forced me to set boundaries around what I could and could not handle. And, um, you know, of course, I, I took time off, a little bit of time off, and thankfully had um, an employer who was very supportive of that. But by the time it came for me to go back to work, I had to set boundaries around what I, what kind of emotional labor in the mm. world around me I could continue taking on. Um, and that was important and it's hard to do that because for me, I'm very, I'm an empath and I work with people and I want to help people as much as possible. And so learning to say no and say, I have nothing more to give. Like I, 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 I can give the bare minimum, um, like what's expected of me right now, but I can't give more than that. Um, it was a, a tough adjustment and it forced me to really take stock of maybe where I had been giving too much mm-hmm. um, over time and maybe where I need to set more boundaries in my life related to that. Could you give an example of, you talked about the emotional labor, um, just further explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so... You know, when I was going through this, I was working in a venture capital firm, and that's largely male-dominated. And there are a lot of conversations around equity and diversity and inclusion in, in technology startups, I mean, in, in the world in general right now. But I think especially with like Susan Fowler's Uber experience, mm-hmm. there's a, a big spotlight on the tech community. Um, and there's a big spotlight on investors because it usually starts at the top, right? And companies do what they're incentivized to do and, and people do what they're incentivized to do. And in many ways, investors decide who, who gets money, what the benchmarks are, what, what the goalposts are, right? And so I had been doing a lot of work around that, um, trying to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion, change how we think about it, developing systemic structures to help disrupt bias, unconscious bias, uh, specifically in among investors. But that's a lot of emotional labor to take on, um, just in general, because I'm already a minority and we're the ones oftentimes who are doing the work to make the change and inspire change and explain why that needs to be done. So mm-hmm. I, I ultimately had to say this, is, this has been a passion of mine for a long time, uh, but it's kind of above and beyond what's expected of me in this role. I was taking it on because it's important and um, I wanted to, but I can't anymore. Yeah, I, I just can't go above and beyond in that way right now. Ultimately, that opened the door for you to join ClearCover, which is actually a company that uh, Hyde Park Angels, where you were at, uh, had invested in. And I know you had been a big part of that uh, investment process with ClearCover. Um, can you, you know, I gave the overview up front, but can you just maybe give a better uh, description of what ClearCover does and your responsibilities in the company? Yeah, so we are a leading insure tech company. And we make, as you mentioned, we use artificial intelligence to 
make better rating predictions uh, and better decisions around what kind of rates we can offer our customers. We also, because we're a tech company and we don't have local agencies set up everywhere throughout the, the nation and um, we're, we're not taking out Super Bowl ads <laughs> and things like that, mm-hmm. um, we save a lot of money. We work hard to operate a lot more efficiently so that we can pass those savings on to our customers and give give people the best coverage for the best price. And to me, that's really important because it's helping like the every person and especially because insurance is something that isn't optional. If, if you have a vehicle, you have to insure it. And if, if we can help everybody get that coverage more cost effectively, that's, that's a win, right? And my role within that is I lead most of the customer facing teams within ClearCover. So I don't lead our, our claims representatives team, but I lead all the teams that help customers either purchase a policy or get help with a policy. Uh, I also um, oversee the team that helps our partner agencies sell ClearCover on our behalf and uh, teams that help customers from a, a service perspective when they're going through the claims experience and they've had to unfortunately file a, a claim due to a car accident or something like that. Um, and, and just generally making sure that we're giving the right people the right coverage that no one's kind of like abusing the system or, mm-hmm. or um, not meeting our underwriting guidelines such that we would ultimately have to raise our prices across the board for people who do meet our underwriting guidelines. With that in mind, let's dive into our topic, which is generating feedback loops to improve the buyer experience, which is a lot of, uh, I think it's in a lot of the process you just talked about is coming out of this concept. Um, Let's start here though. When you use the term feedback loops, how are you defining that for clear covers, particular use cases? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way that I think about it is how do we take what we're hearing from customers in these individual interactions, aggregate that data and give it back to the team who can ultimately solve the customer problem or reduce customer friction in some way. So most of the time for us, that is our product and technology team. Um, That could be adding a feature. It could be... um, changing how a feature works. Like maybe customers don't know that it exists, so there's a discoverability or usability problem. But it could also be leading back to our marketing teams or our our underpinning kind of growth team to make sure that we are setting the right expectations when someone does go to quote through clear cover or setting the right expectations um, just through our AI, making sure that we're targeting the right people. Okay, so expectation setting is a big part of this. Um, when we think about this feedback loop concept, then what what would you say are the points that make the circle, that create the loop? What, where do we start and then how do we circle around and come back to that starting point? So we start in my, the way I talk about it is we start by failing the customer somehow. <laughs> and, oh, interesting. <laughs> and the way that I, the reason I say it that way is because, which admittedly comes across as a bit harsh, but the data shows that something like 85% of the time, customers prefer to help themselves. So if they're reaching out to us, most of the time, 
they didn't want to, right? Mm -hmm. And so I consider that a failure. We didn't meet the customer's needs somehow. And that could be either through the product itself or through our help channels. So we have um, like a, a support page right within our app and on our website that gives customers information that they might not otherwise know. Uh, for example, about what's included with roadside assistance, right? Now, ideally, that would be very clear in the, in the purchase workflow when they purchased it, but you might not remember it. Insurance isn't something that ideally you're using all the time. You don't want your car to be breaking down all the time. Um, so it's somewhat unreasonable to expect that customers would remember that from when they purchase their policy. Um, so there's an opportunity there that we have to help customers in those moments. We, at ClearCover, we call those the moments that matter. And that's something that we would look at. So that's the kind of initial failure point. From that point, they will kind of go around the circle and they contact us somehow. And our responsibility in that moment is, is twofold. One, it's to provide such an amazing customer experience that the customer actually likes us more in that moment than they did before we failed them. So just making sure that they really feel heard, that we are taking ownership of why they contacted us and, um, and making them feel like they're kind of, they're a part of the solution because they contacted us. And then the second responsibility in that moment is for our customer advocates or, or coverage consultants to kind of question what's the underlying reason why this person reached out to me? How do I advocate for them and every other clear cover customer going forward so that nobody else has to contact us for that same reason again. Yeah. It's interesting because you have a business where the very nature of it is uh, a person's reason to get in touch is typically because something went wrong. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't think you'll ever find a situation unless someone's just truly lonely that they're calling up their insurance company just to have a conversation or to proactively right. think about, you know, whatever's going on uh, related to their insurance policy. So that idea of building around the point of failure sort of as your first, um, I guess, first moment or first touch point, I think, uh, makes a lot of sense. And not only that, but I feel like there are a lot of companies who think about, you know, let's say it's like a tr traditional like linear sales process. They think about okay, what are the things we do really well here? And let's build around that. Uh, they don't necessarily think about what's the broken part of this? And what if we re-architected the whole thing around the broken part? How would that change you know, how we do business? Which it sounds like that's really at the crux of everything you're doing, whether it's a new customer or an existing customer. You look at what's broken and if we get that right, then the, the goals we have around customer interaction, which in your case is minimal volume, are ultimately met. Exactly. I think traditionally, a lot of people think about, um, okay, like this is how big the bucket is and this is how, how much water we're putting into it and this is how much leaks out. So how much more water do we have to put into it? Mm. And the role of my team is to say, how do we stop the water from leaking out? Right. Right. Now, strategically, 
and theoretically what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Implementing it though is a much different task. How do you train your team to think in this way and communicate in this way and actually execute the tangible processes around this feedback loop concept? That's the really hard part, right? Um, you nailed that. So I think there are a couple of things. One is hiring the right people. Uh, I think traditionally companies hire, they, they think of customer support or the customer facing team um, that's not a sales team as the band-aid. They're the people who are just going to kind of like pat customers on the back and say, here, here, feel better now and, and move on. And this isn't just about placating people. Um, it's about really being empathetic to the root problem and people who are like, they're going to like keep picking at that scab, right? And try to figure out how do mm. I advocate for the customer in a meaningful way versus just make them feel better in this moment. And so what we do is we use a tool called Zendesk, which is a support CRM. Yep. It's very common. I think a lot of people use it. What I think a lot of companies don't necessarily do is really customize Zendesk to make it work for them versus just kind of like working with it out of box and enhancing it here and there. So we basically systematically connect common customer pain points to right to a backlog that we would use in, in JIRA. And we would say, oh, the root of this person's issue is related to this JIRA issue. We'll call it JIRA issue one, two, three. And I'm going to make sure that that unique identifier in JIRA is added to every ticket, every mm -hmm. Zendesk ticket where this issue comes up. And we make that really easy for our customer advocates to do. Uh, there's a concept in, in Zendesk called a macro where you would, you know, they, they would know, I'm, I've seen this before. I know what this is. I'm going to apply this macro so that the appropriate tags are applied on the ticket. Mm -hmm. And then the nice thing about Zendesk is when you have all these unique identifiers, then you can run reports on, on any time basis you want and understand what are the tags that occur the most frequently and then you've got volume. You can also say, how long does it take us to solve those issues? You can figure out how long that takes. When you add in how much your team costs, um, you can go to your product team and say, hey, not having this feature is costing us this many dollars per month. What if we add that feature? We would reduce our servicing expenses by X amount mm. and uh, have happier customers in the process. Next, I want to ask you about what happens when things break. But before I do that, I just want to take a quick aside and let our listeners know about our show's sponsor in Sales Hacker. If you're not familiar with Sales Hacker, it is the world's smartest community for forward-thinking B2B professionals. It's over 135,000 members strong. And whether you're a CEO, a head of sales, or a sales rep, Sales Hacker just helps you get better at your job with podcasts, articles, webinars, and research from actual sales experts and practitioners. I am a contributing author to the Sales Hacker platform. I've done some really cool webinars with them in the past. Um, and, and overall, this is a community that I really love what they're doing. I'm really excited that they are a partner of the show. And 
to get involved, all you have to do is go to saleshacker.com and it's all free too. That's the best part to do. hundred percent of the content is free. So go to saleshacker.com for free access to the articles and the research and more. And also as of uh, this episode being live, Sales Hacker has just dropped a really cool new community feature to its website to make the whole thing way more interactive. So be sure to head there now. Again, saleshacker.com. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are with Heidi Cron, the head of customer ag- advocacy with ClearCover, and we're talking about generating feedback loops to improve the buyer experience. Heidi, um, I mentioned I want to ask you about what happens when things break. So you can create the feedback loop. Let's say you identify a specific instance where um, you need to close that loop. But does it happen that the loop breaks? And in those cases, what do you do? It can happen. The loop can break. And I would say the most common reason why that happens is a communication breakdown within the customer experience team where folks didn't know that an issue was being tracked and that they need to apply a specific macro or specific tag, that unique identifier that allows us to aggregate data around where our customers experience the most friction. Unfortunately, that's a very manual process to go back. And if you have you know, lots and lots of customers like we do, um, that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that for us, the the best way that we have for that is to make sure that in those moments when it's like, oh no, there's some kind of a, there's a small fire. Like maybe one of the DMVs that we work with had some kind of an outage, for example. And that means that people can't purchase their policies online. They're calling in because they're experiencing problems. They want to get a policy. We have to be very mindful. All of our leaders have to be very mindful in those moments to say, oh, we need to file a JIRA issue for this. We need to start tracking this. This is the unique identifier. Let me spin up a macro really quickly. Please put all those like tickets to the side so that we handle this the right way um, and invest that time up front to, to handle things smoothly down the line. And that's really, really hard for folks to do, especially when you've got a customer waiting for an answer. But it is the right thing to do long term to try to figure out how can we uh, potentially work with that DMV to mm. prevent issues like this in the future? Like what are the options that, that we can explore there? Do we need to rethink a partnership? Do we need to um, have a better like failover system for, for some reason? So it's really, really important to invest that time up front. And not only for that reason, but such that when there is a solution and we have that macro in place, it makes it loads faster for our customer advocates to go in and answer all of those customers really accurately and really efficiently so that customers don't like get a response that says, I'll get back to you. Right. Right. We get them the right answer the first time. Let me build off that a little bit more then. So essentially what you, what you shared there was the loops break when something has been more or less like under macroed. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with, with the tech, not with the tech stack you're using. Mm-hmm. Is it possible though, conversely, that something could be over macroed or you made an, you made a sweeping assumption and macroed it only to realize actually that's not what we're now seeing consistently moving forward. Yeah, that does happen. Uh, we have a protocol in place that says we, we wait 
a little bit before we create a macro, unless it's crystal clear, like an outage, right? Mm. Um, we wait to hear something a few times before we create a macro, um, such that we have developed muscle memory around it and kind of that, we call it like the sixth sense of pattern recognition sure. to know, like I can diagnose this accurately and, and apply things accurately in that moment. Um, but to your point, there are sometimes things that come up that look like something that you have strong pattern recognition for and end up being something very different. Mm. This is very common in, in, in technical support. So on our side, it's really important that we aren't simply hiring people who are passionate about customers, but who have the technical aptitude and the interest in really learning the product so that they can better detect like idiosyncrasies in, in patterns and aren't fearful of diving in. This isn't the type of role where you might see in a call center where everything is scripted. Um, this is more technical than that, uh, such that our, our team members are truly empowered to be able to detect and diagnose issues that our customers come up against. Yeah, you mentioned before um, that concept of like the small fires um, and almost just being like better prepared for that so that they aren't fires. I, I used to joke that like, you know, I, I started my career more closely tied to like the advertising agency world, marketing agency world. And I remember when I exited that world, I was like, man, everything is always on fire at these companies. <laughs> Like, like, like any ad agency, there's always a fire that has to be put out. And I'm just in my head, I'm just like, why do you let the customer bully you like that? And then also who wants to go to work with a building that's burning down every day? It's brutal. It's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of that thoughtful, advanced uh, thinking. And on our team, what we've increasingly been doing is we have two standing meetings a week with our product team. And that's time for our product team to come and say, hey, we're thinking of building this. Here's a mock-up of it. Poke holes in it. Mm -hmm. How useful is this? Like, Think about what we can't think about because we aren't on the front lines of the customer every day. And so we've been really grateful to have that good relationship with, with product that appreciates the lens that we bring to clear cover on behalf of our customers. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think that's a key differentiator, right? When you compare to those companies where things are always breaking and they're always putting out the fires is they tend to let the issues happen and, and almost keep treating them as a one-off. Uh, so they just fix it for that moment, but don't think about preventative measures moving forward. And they often don't, um, they don't, have an internal they don't they don't have enough internal stakeholders involved where like you said like half your team is just poking holes at it before it's ever rolled out publicly mm -hmm. um i i think it's e i think it's a much easier much more obvious strategy when you think about your external facing like software that you're selling to people much harder when you think about internal process changes that's very true that's very true um well, my final question here before we begin our wrap up is this feedback loop approach. How do you feel this differs and perhaps it plays off what we just said. How do you feel this differs 
from some other customer experience approaches where you just kind of hear the whoever is the head of sales, the head of CX being like, just make sure you're constantly providing value or, well, hey, we just got to keep or win them at any cost. So just like bend to their requests to make sure we retain or acquire. Um, how do you feel this approach, I guess, fundamentally differs from, from those approaches? I think this approach does a better job of retaining customers for the long term. Um, making, you know, following the strategy that you just mentioned of bending to whatever a customer asks for is rarely executable <laughs> in, in my experience anyway. It, it results in a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. And in, in my experience, customers are okay with not getting the exact answer that they wanted as long as you acknowledge that. And as long as you say, here's why, and this is where we're at, people appreciate that. When they feel like they're getting inside knowledge around this is, this is the roadmap for right now where I'm, I'm advocating for you and all of our customers who asked for feature B, mm. um, but this has to be prioritized alongside some other things. Here's the reality of when we can probably expect that. Um, people, just like people don't want to have to reach out, the reason that they don't want to reach out is because it's labor intensive. It's taking their time. It's distracting from more important things in their life. So if you And they're used give, to it being a long, bad experience. Exactly. So if you can give them as, as accurate of an answer as possible right up front and explain the why behind it, most of the time they're like, hey, thanks for saving me the time. And I'm maybe this isn't the product for me or maybe this isn't the company for me, but I'm not going to sit around and wait for a feature that will never be delivered. I'm going to cut my losses and go somewhere else. But you gave me really great service and I'm going to recommend you for my folks in, in my life or my professional sphere who might need software like, like this, but they don't need that feature B that I need. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, the kind of service that creates brand evangelists sure. rather than um, the kind of service that just answers a question and, and says next. Right. Let's begin our wrap up. Um, where can our listeners find you and learn more about clear cover? So they can follow me on Twitter. It's at Heidi Cron. They can also follow ClearCover on Twitter, just at ClearCover. Uh, they can follow Intermittent on Twitter. It's IntermittentConf, C-O-N-F. And of course, check out ClearCover.com for job postings. We are hiring right now. And check out Intermittent.org if uh, you're interested in learning more about equitable entrepreneurship. Awesome. Um, to do our wrap up then, we'll each go and give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on the discussion. I'll go first and then I'll, I'll toss it over to you. Uh, to me, the biggest thing that I learned out of this is starting by recognizing the point of failure uh, and then building your process around that. Heidi, top one or two lessons or takeaways for generating feedback loops to improve the buyer experience. I would say it's one of the top inputs to product is sharing customer feedback back to the team that's building the the solution for customers and it is the number one way to scale a company efficiently so that your customer service costs don't 
just bloat beyond uh, control. My final question for you, which is how we finish every episode here, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. An opportunity to create more social equity in the world around us. Say more on that. (laughs) I think entrepreneurship is when done well um, and when done equitably. If, If you're building a startup, if you're giving all of your employees equity, it is a unique opportunity to reduce income disparity. It's a unique opportunity to create jobs for people who maybe don't have traditional education in the way that we think about it. It's a unique opportunity to create access in in ways that a lot of companies don't. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about entrepreneurship. I, like I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I didn't grow up with parents who were software engineers or executives in, in a fortune 500 company. But I've spent my entire life working in or with startups um, or my entire career, not my entire life. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And it has afforded opportunities to me that were above and beyond anything that I could have dreamed of because Mm. people say you can't be what you can't see. Um, Right. There's, there's something to that, right? Where I wouldn't have dreamed of this, um, but it's been a, an amazing and very rewarding career to be a part of it and be a part of something um, that I can truly influence in meaningful ways as opposed to working for a, a, G, a GM. Mm. No offense she- to GM. I'm so grateful for GM. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. I don't think anyone from GM is listening to this show. <laughs> She is Heidi Cron. She is the head of customer advocacy at ClearCover and the co-founder of Intermittent. And she's also the latest guest on this show. Heidi, thank you so much for joining. It was great to hear from you and, and learn your lessons of the road you've traveled. Thank you so much, Raj. I really appreciate it. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.